Today, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. And that is an incredible, uh, an incredible display of victory over sin and victory over death and quite frankly, victory over anything I could imagine. But it's always with sort of mixed emotions because throughout the weekend, we also celebrate Good Friday, right? On Friday, and it's hard for me to call that good because on Good Friday, our Savior was brutally beaten and tortured and, and crucified and nailed to a cross because of my sin. Because He loved me so much that this was part of God's rescue mission, God's plan to bring salvation and forgiveness for my sins. And so I'm excited for Sunday, but I have this tension because Friday and Saturday, I can just picture the disciples and they had just seen their rabbi, their master, who they were pinning all their hopes on, hang dead on a tree. And I can just imagine the, the despair that they left with. And we know that from Scripture and the heartache and the brokenness and they end up in hiding because they just don't even know what to do. And it's that Friday and Saturday world that gives a backdrop for the incredibleness of Sunday morning. Without the death, without the the brutality, without the the grave, the resurrection is not there. It means nothing. And and so it's this, this mixture of Friday and Saturday, but then Sunday. This morning as we talk, and I just want to talk a little bit about the resurrection. Our theme for the morning is risen. And I don't think it's that different. I think we live in a Friday and Saturday world. We live in a fallen, disgusting, depraved world. And, and not to paint it in a bad light, but it's about right. I was trying to watch the news this week, and I don't watch the network news much anymore, but I was flipping it through, and one of my kids was awake and listening, and, and I, I could not get off those stations fast enough. Because there were no stories that I even wanted my kids to see. Because we live in a fallen world. As Albert Moeller calls it, a Genesis 3 world, and I steal that from him. There's a lot to be concerned about, right? We, we can watch the news, or we can read the, the internet news, and we can be concerned about ISIS and what is happening in the Middle East. We can be concerned about Iran and should be concerned about Iran. Concerned about local crime, concerned about the murders that are happening. Will our economy last? It's a lot to be concerned with. Just this week, I, I, I can remember visiting with a couple in our church, an older couple that are preparing for one of them to go be with Jesus. And sitting and praying with them and crying with them, and my heart just aching with them, because that death is part of our Friday and Saturday world. It's part of this, this fallen state that we find ourselves in. As you look at even the prayer request on the village group in the last week or two, we've seen requests for, for sickness, we've seen requests for jobs, we've seen requests for, for families where their kids are just going nuts sometimes and, and parents are wanting help. And I've seen marriages on the verge of breaking up. And all of that's a Friday and Saturday world. A Genesis 3 world. But God intervened. And that's the message this morning of the resurrection. God intervened. We are in a world that is increasingly in despair because how do you deal with all those things? What hope do you have? And none without Jesus Christ. But God intervened. And on Sunday morning, the story continued. 
Friday and Saturday with the disciples in despair did not end the story. Sunday morning, they had a whole new reality that changed everything. And so this morning, we want to talk about the resurrection. It's a day that, quite frankly, a lot of people in the world don't understand. To them, that this idea that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is about as fanciful as the Easter Bunny. And there's not a lot different. But how do we answer that? How do we know that Christ rose from the dead? How do we answer someone's objections? How do we get beyond the myths and the fairy tale that the world thinks it is and say this is actually the answer that this world needs? That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and then conquered death and conquered sin because He wasn't there Sunday morning. So we're going to look at some evidence. And this morning I just want to look through seven facts of the resurrection. We'll go through them quickly. Again, this is an overview. On each of them, we could drill down and have a sermon for each of them. But maybe I give you just a little taste of how we know that the resurrection is true. Josh McDowell was once asked as he was teaching, Professor McDowell, why can't you refute Christianity? His answer was, for a very simple reason. I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for him, the resurrection stood as a linchpin of all of Christianity, an event that he couldn't explain away. And I would argue as we look at the facts, we can't explain it away either, and we're forced to deal with it this morning and every Easter. See, why is it important that he rose? Why is it important to know that this is true? And there's just a a couple of quick things. One is Jesus claimed he would rise from the dead. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, they're going to Jerusalem and he says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and and, and deliver, sorry, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus claimed he would raise from the dead, right? So if it doesn't happen, what does that make Jesus' claims? Lies. He's either a liar or a lunatic. Most people probably thought he was a lunatic at this point. You're going to raise from the dead? Right. Yeah, if one of my kids said that to me, I'd be like, yeah, you're, you're nuts. And that's probably what they thought. But that's why this is, that's one of the reasons this is so important to prove that he was who he said he was. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, your faith is worthless. It's vain. It means nothing. If there's no resurrection, then what was this morning about? A good breakfast? Watching some people take a bath in our jacuzzi? (laughs) Without the resurrection, it means nothing. That's all it means, right? And so our faith is not worthless. The resurrection is a key to understanding that. Paul said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that we don't have hope for a future, we are of all people most pitied. I don't want to be pitied. So we need to explore, is this true? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he said. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What an incredible story. This is good news. See, if Christ doesn't rise, Satan wins. If Christ doesn't rise, sin and death have not been conquered. And so it's an important discussion. How do we know that the resurrection actually happened? How do we know that He's risen? And we we think of, okay, some of the things we'll look at. What are the evidences that corroborate the story? You know, when I come home and if I find a a broken window at my house, and this hasn't happened, so my kids, don't worry. 
Um, but if I find a broken window at the house, what am I going to ask? Who did it? What happened? Who did it? And if all the kids are like, not me, not me, which amazing how often that happens. <laughs> she takes the fall for the kids. <laughs> no, you corroborate the evidence. You, you find things. That's what we want to do with the resurrection this morning. This morning is going to be exciting for some of you. It's going to be just, oh, this is wonderful because this is a great day. I pray that for some of you that don't know Christ, this morning's disturbing and, and confronts you with a reality, a fact that you just don't know what to do with. Because then I pray you'll do something with it and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John 20. There's a number of, of resurrection stories we can go to. In fact, every gospel has it and records it. It's one of the most attested events in history. But John chapter 20. I want to read just the the first few verses, verses 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had, not, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. And so we see John's account of the resurrection and his account of going and what happened and what he saw. And There's several things out of this account that I want to pull out and some of the other accounts. And some of them may be obvious, but it's building a case, an orderly case. The first fact we saw in the first couple verses there, it was the empty tomb. The empty tomb. They went and they, they looked and Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, saw the, uh, the stone had been rolled away. She ran, told a couple of the disciples. They go running in and Peter and John get there and they verify Jesus is not there. Jesus is gone. And what an incredible thing to, to be in this mode of despair and you go and, and He's not there. Now at that point, you're confronted with some options because your question probably is, who did this? Or how did this happen? But the first fact to establish is that the tomb was actually empty. See, the disciples were preaching a risen Savior after this. At the birth of the church and, and Pentecost, they are going through Jerusalem preaching a risen Savior. They are preaching in the same town that He was crucified and buried in. If what they're saying is false, if the tomb is not empty, what does someone do? They can go check, right? The Romans and the Jews did not want Christianity to start. They were opposed to Christianity. And so this story that comes out in John and in all the Gospels, this story that they're teaching right away is easily, is easily proven wrong if it's wrong. 
You know, if I'm a Jewish authority, if I'm a, if I'm a Roman authority, and this new cult is starting up that I think is a cult that I don't want to happen, and they're saying Jesus rose from the dead, and that's a challenge to me, the first thing I do is go to the tomb and get a cart and take the body and go through the streets. And not to be crude, but I say, no, they're lying. But that didn't happen. And it's one of the external ways we know that this, this presentation of the Gospel is true. Because they didn't do that. They had no body to parade in front of people. It would be like my sons if I get home one day and they claim that our treehouse is gone. It has vanished. The first thing I would do is go out back and look and say, no, it, no, it hasn't. You're nuts. It's right there. And I've completely blown their story out of the water. Like, okay, Dad, it hasn't. We're kidding. That's what they would have done if this was false. So we have to understand right from the start, the tomb actually was empty. It's not a myth. It's not just recorded in Scripture. The empty tomb created a problem. See, even Jewish and Roman sources admit the tomb was empty. Josephus, all the way to 5th century Jewish writings, they all admit the tomb was empty. The earliest arguments against Christianity, none of them were saying that Jesus was still there. All of them were trying to just explain the empty tomb. But they all assumed the tomb was empty. It's important. Because if we, if we establish that the tomb was empty, now we have to establish what happened and we have to deal with that. One author said certain facts about Jesus are accepted by nearly all historians, Christians or not, scholars who have examined the data, said no one can logically deny the certain fact of Jesus' death. That's recorded in history. No one can logically deny the placing of the body in a grave whose location was known by all, even the enemies of Christianity. No one can logically deny the, the employment of a Roman military guard. No one can logically deny that the tomb was empty. And so the question is, what do we do with that? People have have given all kinds of explanations, naturalistic explanations, trying to explain it away because they don't want to deal with the resurrection. And so one of those explanations is the uh, the swoon theory. And I'll just hit these uh, briefly. We can talk more afterwards if you'd like. The swoon theory says Jesus just went through so much that he fainted on the cross. He wasn't really dead, and they took him down, and they didn't realize that he wasn't dead, and they put him in the tomb, and wrapped him, and embalmed him, and put him in the tomb, and then he woke up from his fainting spell a couple days later and walked out of the tomb. So that's one of the theories that in the last especially 100, 200 years has has been going around to explain what happened to the body. Again, the tomb was empty. We all can agree on that, so now there's all these efforts to, to explain that away. There's all kinds of problems with that, though. One is who's doing the execution? The Romans. Now, just just right up front, the Romans were incredibly skilled at killing people. In fact, if they didn't kill them right, the guards that were performing the execution were executed. This was a serious deal for them. And so to say that they somehow missed it, that they somehow accidentally left a, a live person in the, in the tomb is, is pretty ridiculous. They were risking their own lives. In Mark 15, 44, Pilate, it says Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died. And so he checks, right? If, if you hear something you don't believe, you check. So he summons the centurion. 
he asked him whether or not he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. An expert verified it. One doctor described the events of the crucifixion. And I don't have time to read it all this morning, but he goes through the beatings and the intensity of the beatings. He goes through the hypervolemic shock that he would have been in. He goes through what happens when the nails are nailed and the nerves that it cuts. And he says there is just no way that someone lives through this. And even if they do live through this, there is no way that they have the strength and the energy to get up, get out of the linen cloth, roll a one and a half ton stone out of the way by themselves, uphill, and say, look at me, I'm fine. It's not even possible. He describes the pain on the cross as excruciating, which the word for excruciating means out of the cross. When we use that word, we're referring back to the crucifixion. There was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. He didn't swoon. Another objection that's sometimes given is the wrong tomb theory. The women went to the wrong tomb and and then led the disciples to the wrong tomb, even though it's recorded that the woman watched where Jesus was buried. And and somehow the Jewish authorities were mistaken and didn't go to the right tomb to look for the body. And, And the angels, they were mistaken. And the Roman guards, they were mistaken. Sort of get where I'm going with that? It wasn't the wrong tomb. This was a publicly known place. Another objection sometimes is the stolen body theory or the conspiracy theory that the disciples snuck by the Roman guards and rolled away the stone, one and a half tons, two tons, without attracting any attention, stole the body, somehow got the grave clothes back intact, and snuck back out while the Roman guards slept or didn't even notice. But again, the Roman guards would have lost their life if this happened. They were the most skilled at these night watches. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The tomb was sealed. On top of all that, the disciples were despondent, depressed, scared, discouraged. They were in no place to do this. No place to pull this off. There's no evidence of that. But all of these still assume an empty tomb. You notice that? The tomb was empty, people. The question is, what do we do with that? Why was it empty? The next three facts really flow from the first one, that the tomb was empty. And So just to give an overview of those, fact number two, the large stone was moved. See, that Sunday morning, one of the things that's repeated in gospel after gospel is the witnesses came and the stone was gone. It was moved away in John. If you, if you look at the, the John 20 passage in verse 1, it was still dark and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And the, the way that the stones worked, and again, this is historical information, you can go and actually see some of the tombs now, is they were, they were hewn into rock, this, this um, cave or this, this room that you would put a body in, and then there was this, this trench or this trough in front of it that would go downhill and this one and a half to two ton stone was rolled over the opening. Now, have you ever tried to roll something uphill? It's just not going to happen. It would be like if we put a car, one of our cars on a slope and said, I'd like you to push it uphill by yourself. 
It just, it, it's not going to happen. It takes multiple men to do this. It's a process with levers. Because also, after it was load, rolled into place and, and chunk, it stops there. Then they'd put another rock in that would, would secure it in place and pound that in. Slanted groove, this, this rock, this stone, this disc stone that was there. You don't sneak this open. Again, you don't just sneak behind the guards and, and, and casually push the stone apart. The stone's a problem. Now some may say, why, why was the stone removed? Well, maybe the stone wasn't removed. Again, if the stone's not removed, what do the Jewish authorities do when this, this new movement starts? They go to the tomb, remove the stone, get the body out. Just a thought I had as I was studying this week. I don't actually think the stone was removed for Jesus' sake. He was able to get out of the linen clause just fine. We see him meeting the disciples and walking through a wall. I don't think the stone was a problem. Why was the stone removed? For us. So we would see the empty tomb. So we'd be confronted with the victory of the resurrection. Fact number three. There was a broken Roman seal. In Matthew 27, 66, we, we see, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And that'll be our next two. Sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so what they would do is they would probably take some sort of rope and, and they would put the rope either all the way across the, the, the large stone that was rolled over the opening and then they'd seal it on either side with wax and quite possibly the signet ring of somebody in authority. Or they would seal one side of it to the stone. And what that authority meant, what that seal meant, was if you mess with this, you are messing with the Roman government, who's really skilled at killing people. Remember that point? And so people were scared of the Roman government. They were scared of the oppression. And that seal meant something to them. For us, we'd walk up and say, oh, a rope, and pull it off. For them, they'd say, oh, the Roman seal, I need to stay back. My life depends on this. And so again, would the disciples have had the courage to break that seal to steal the body? No, the FBI or the CIA of the Roman Empire would have been called into action. They would have been gone. See, to break a seal was to mean execution by crucifixion upside down. But the disciples were hiding in fear. Peter had already denied Christ. They weren't going up against a Roman authority, and, and neither was anyone else. It's another fact in the whole picture. Fourth picture, the Roman guard left their post. The Roman guard leaves their post. We saw from the Matthew passage that, that they had posted a Roman guard, and, and the Roman guard was responsible to make sure nobody robbed the tomb, Nobody stole the body. Nobody desecrated the tomb in any way. And they were there. We know that the Jewish authorities were also concerned about, oh, they'll steal the body and say he rose from the dead. So we're not going to let that happen. So this guard is there. Justin in Digest 49, he, he talks about some offenses in the, the Roman Empire that would incur the death penalty. And one way a guard was put to death was to be stripped of his clothes and then burned alive in fire, started with his garments. If it was not apparent which soldier had failed his duty, then lots were drawn to see which one was to be punished for the death, for the unit's failure. And so these soldiers, if they failed their task, 
one would be killed and burned alive. It's how the Roman government kept authority and kept the ranks in line. But instead, we read in Matthew 28, 11-15, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. So they've left already. The tomb was empty. There was nothing left to guard. They went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So instead of death, they got rich. Something smells fishy there. And it's because they witnessed they, 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 they witnessed the angel coming down and they became like stone and the body was gone and they had no answer. And the Jewish leaders had no answer. And it wasn't a dereliction of duty. It was God raising His Son from the dead. I, I think of my kids when I tell them to watch something. They're just intent on watching it, right? But it, it's even scarier when they haven't been told to watch something and they decide that they're going to watch me. And, and it, it's amazing. We, we have some time off school right now. And on school mornings, it's just really hard for them to get up, right? Parents, mom, dad. But on days off when Susie and I can sleep in, they are up at the crack of dawn. And, and what they, and they did this a couple times this last week. Actually, two of them did it at, on different days. Bless their hearts. And uh, I know they're in here. <laughs> they will come to where I'm sleeping. And just stare. Have you ever woken up out of a sound sleep to someone just staring at you two inches away? It messes with your mind. Now, usually I have to admit, kids, this is free. They're in here. Usually I have to admit I'm awake. And I am just holding as still as I can. (laughs) I hope they don't notice. I hope they don't notice. Because as soon as they notice, what do they do? And it's this pile on dad and there is no more rest and no more sleep. That's sort of like the guards at the post. Their job was to watch this tomb and to watch the opening and make sure nothing happened. They were good at it. They didn't fall asleep. They would be killed if they did. And so they were watching that intently for any movement. For any Now, they probably weren't watching the stone. Their backs were probably to the stone and they're watching for any disciples coming or grave robbers or anything like that. And it would have been nuts on their minds if all of a sudden the stone moves behind them. Just picture that. But they left their post. The Roman guards is fact number four. They knew what they were doing and something supernatural happened to change that. Fact number five. The grave clothes were still there. At this I have to admit, okay, the tomb wasn't actually empty. There were grave clothes still there. And 
If, if we know from historical settings and Jewish traditions that when someone died, they would take these strips of cloths and they would take, in, in this case, it says about 75 pounds of, of aloe and myrrh and, and they would dip these cloths in the spice, cloths in the spices and then they would wrap each limb of the deceased and then the torso of the deceased and they would leave the head open for, a, for um, the head covering. But then as these spices dried, the, the linen became sort of this mummy shell. And in three days, it definitely would have already hardened. And so they did this. And not to mention how, back to the, the swoon theory, how would someone that's half dead and barely able to move even get out of something like that if you've been wrapped up in cloths? But it's really interesting to see the wording in John 20 where, where John says he believed. If you look at verse 8, it says, Then the other disciple, which is referring to himself, to John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. What did he see? Have you ever thought about that? What would have immediately said, this isn't just that the, the authorities have stolen the body, this isn't just some act of vandalism, but he rose from the dead. And we see that earlier in verse 5 and in verse 6. He's highlighting that they saw the linen cloths lying there. And so picture you go into a tomb and you see the mummified linen cloth still where the body was. Maybe a little caved in because now they're hollow. You can't explain that. Someone can't steal the body out of that. You would have broken the hardened linen cloths. They would have been all over the place. The only explanation was God. God raised him from the dead. And his body was taken out of those linen clothes and they were left there as an evidence, as a sign. Amazing facts. Fact number six. And we come to, to another one of the key facts. I think the empty tomb is a key fact. And then we have some details in, in two through five. But number six is, is a key fact. Jesus' appearances. You know, if you go to court, how many of you have done jury duty? Best thing ever, right? I'm still trying to get on a court. I wish they would let me on one. But um, as you're listening to a case, if there are eyewitnesses, does that help the case? How many eyewitnesses do they usually have that really help the case? Two, right? Two or three? If, if you have two or three people that are all separate, that are all saying the same thing, that case is pretty solid. Well, let's look at what eyewitnesses we have, because there were a lot more than, than two. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, it's a section that we're going to be studying as we go through 1 Corinthians, and, and it's a section that was probably an early creed of the church. Probably within two to five years after the crucifixion and resurrection, this was already being recited in the church. And so Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." And that's terminology saying he received this as a part of the creeds of the church. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then the cool stuff. And, well, that, that's all cool too. <laughs> that's amazing. But then the, the proof. And that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter. Then to the twelve, so to all of the disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So we're already up to 512 eyewitnesses. And, and listen to what Paul says. Most of whom are still alive. Why is that important? 
They're witnesses, right? Is it different eyewitness testimony? If I say, okay, I saw you doing such and such, and if you come to tell me and you find that I'm dead, can you corroborate that story? No. But if I'm alive, you can say, is that true or not? And so Paul's saying, 500 people, most of them are still alive. In fact, go ask them. If you don't think he rose from the dead, if you don't think people saw him alive afterwards, go ask them. Check it out. That's powerful stuff. That's hard to refute. In fact, I don't believe we can refute it. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, still alive, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he, he appeared also to me. Paul the Apostle is saying that. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's also a key line to this. Paul was not a friendly witness. He was a hostile witness. He was persecuting the church of God. He was throwing Christians in jail. He was having them executed. And he says, during that time, I saw Jesus on that road to Damascus when God intervened in his life. And he saw the risen Savior and he believed. Again, if it were not true, they could have gone and asked these people. If there weren't witnesses... Sort of to put this in perspective, if you took all these witnesses to a court of law and gave them each just 15 minutes of testimony and you went 24 hours a day, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony. There's not a court case in this country that would fail with that kind of testimony. And yet people doubt he rose. Some of the people, some of the list of people that saw him. Mary Magdalene, the woman returning, the women returning from the tomb, Peter later that day, to John, to the, the Emmaus disciples, to the apostles without Thomas, to the apostles with Thomas present, to the seven by the lake of Tiberias, to the 500 plus believers on a Galilean mountain, to James, his brother, to the disciples at the ascension, to Paul, to Stephen as he's being stoned, to John on the island of Patmos, People saw Jesus alive. I love Gary Habermas, some of his discussion on the resurrection. He asked two questions. And this, for him, is the linchpin to knowing that this is true. He says, the first question you have to ask is, did Jesus really die on the cross? Second question you have to ask is, did he appear later to people? And he said, if you've established those things, you've made the case, because dead people usually don't do that. Good point, isn't it? Have you seen any dead people lately? Come, and we know he ate with the disciples. He talked with them. The only explanation is that he's risen. The last fact, fact number seven, the disciples' lives. The disciples' lives. What caused these meek, scared men to completely change and be willing to give their lives for this truth of the resurrection. Something had to have changed. It wasn't for the money. It wasn't for the prestige because nearly all of them were killed for their belief. They were poor. They were destitute. There was no advantage to this story. But they held to it. And they gave their lives. And that's proof of their confidence that this was true. 
Now, some may say, well, others die for their faith. Muslims may die for their faith. And we, we see all kinds of terrorists dying for what they call their faith. The difference is this. Someone will die for a, for a religious faith or a religious truth that they believe is true. But someone won't die for a truth that they know is false. And so if the disciples made this up, if they stole the body, if they hadn't seen Jesus alive, they would be dying for a truth that they know is false. And people just don't do that. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead because they saw him. Because they ate with him. Pascal, mathematician and a believer, said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Amazing. Their changed lives is another fact of the resurrection. Jesus still changes lives today because of the resurrection, because he is alive, because he is living in us. And let me just ask a question. How many of you, and I'd like you to stand if this was true, how many of you have been changed because Jesus died on the cross for you, because he paid the price for your sin, because he rose again on the third day? How many of you have been changed because of that? Would you stand? I'm going to call that fact number eight. How do you deny that? Changed lives. You can be seated. Thank you. The only explanation is he has risen. This isn't a fairy tale day. This isn't a chance to get candy and eggs. This is a day to celebrate the most amazing event in history that our Lord and Savior, who was crucified, who bore our sins, every one of our sins, on Himself, on the third day, rose from the dead. And that cannot be denied. So I want to leave you with this question. What are you going to do with that truth? What are you going to do with the the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? can't be explained away. And if you have other explanations for it, I'd love to talk because there's a whole lot of things that I wasn't able to get to. And I have some books. If you want a book called The Case for Christ or The Case for Easter and you want to explore that more, just come, I'll give you one. It's that important. But what are you going to do with it? Many of you are believers here. And the the challenge for you is what are you going to live in light of the resurrection? How are you going to live every moment saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. My sins are gone and He defeated death and I have a future with Him. But I also have a now with Him. Because He's alive. Because He's still Emmanuel and that's not just a Christmas song. I know that He's with me. And there is nothing in this Friday and Saturday world that He can't change. And there is no struggle that you're dealing with that God isn't greater than. And we have a hope of eternity with Him that can never be taken away if we believe in Him. So how are you going to live for Christ this week? How are you going to live for the resurrection this week? It means having hope. It means realizing that I am never defeated because it's not about me, it's about Him and He is never defeated. It means He has already conquered sin and so if there's sin in my life that is ruling, that's because I'm letting it rule. Am I going to have the joy that says, I serve a living Savior? 
That's what Easter needs to mean to us. Now, some of you maybe have never heard about Jesus. Maybe you've never been confronted with, with the, the concept of the Gospel. See, I think we would all agree we live in a fallen world, a Friday-Saturday world, a Genesis 3 world. And that sin in our lives, if God is just, if He is righteous, He must discipline. He must punish. And out of love, the most incredible love that we will ever know, Jesus came to earth, God's Son, and said, I'll take your punishment for you. I will hang on that cross. I will be tortured. I will die for you to pay for your sins. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's what today's about. And then three days later, he proved that Satan didn't win and that death didn't win and sin was completely paid for because he showed up alive and God raised him from the dead. I'd like to end with the words of Jesus. Jesus was talking to Martha after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus looks her in the eye and says, do you believe this? And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, and you're struggling with sin in this world, today's the day to answer, do you believe this? He paid the price for your sin, conquered it with the empty tomb. I challenge you, give your life to Jesus this morning. It'll change everything. I'm going to pray, and I'd like to pray along with me, and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is an opportunity to do that by praying with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have rebelled against you. I have not followed your word, your commands. Lord, I know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, and then to die on that cross in my place, to take my penalty for me. And then I know on the third day you rose again, defeating death, defeating sin. And so, Lord, today I give my life to you. I believe in you. I repent of my sins. I follow you with my life. In Jesus' name, amen.